Hi, I'm Sarah Bariza, a church musician and researcher living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. This is Music and the Church. So we're going to talk about storing choral music. And we're going to start by talking about what we're storing. Choral octavos, the sheet music or books of anthems. A couple of years back, I was looking at a bunch of music that I wanted to do and realized that a lot of the same anthems were all collected in the various Oxford books. So the Oxford book of choral music for Advent, uh, the Oxford book of choral music for, I think it's Ash Wednesday through Easter, and then there's another one for all Saints through Epiphany. Or I suppose that would be Epiphany through All Saints, wouldn't it? Anyway, it's kind of the, the collection of the rest of the seasons. And I realized that it was significantly cheaper to purchase these collections than to purchase the anthems in them separately as octavos. But we're, we're talking about plopping down a lot of money at the outset. Yes, yes, they are not. What I discovered after they arrived and we started using them, and the first set that we used was in Advent, was how much simpler it made music arranging, like the physical maneuvering of sheet music. Because instead of having a fairly hefty collection of octavos that we would sort into the choral binders at the beginning of each season, and then waiting for choir members to discover where something was alphabetically and having to remind people, oh, you know, the word V isn't going to be included in the alphabetizing, so if you're looking for the king of love my shepherd is... Are you talking about alphabetized in the binder? Yes, in their binder. And so they'd be looking under T instead of K. This actually goes back to a conversation we had earlier in episode two about arranging your choir season and with a volunteer choir you can't necessarily just oh you know just put your octavos in the order that you're going to sing them because you don't necessarily know that because you're working with a volunteer choir and you know what your tenors might just disappear on you right right and so you you would suddenly have people who weren't there for the rehearsal when you reorganized the pieces so i see why you have it alphabetized rather than in the order that you're going to sing Um, it on the sunday and so suddenly instead of that and that sounds like such a minor headache but it can take up two minutes with each anthem that you're rehearsing. You know, you have to wait for everyone to get to it. Whereas if if you're singing... And then someone's like, oh, I can't find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, let's put everything on pause while we go find you a copy of the anthem. Which is fine. I want everyone to have a copy of the music, but that's like an added hassle oh, uh, that needs yeah, in a rehearsal yeah. time. Whereas when you're singing out of a, a large collection book, you can just say, page 56. And like, there's, there's no question. There's no searching for something, you know, there's no flipping past the anthem, you know, because it was a smaller piece of sheet music or whatever. Like, everyone just turns to page 56. And I realize that sounds like such a small thing, but it has simplified my life so much, especially in Easter and then Lent and Advent. Like, pretty much all of the repertoire that we'll be singing in those, in those major seasons is contained in these books, and they have a huge selection of repertoire which, you know, we'll be lucky to get through in 10 years. And it's not just anthem repertoire. There are responses. There are anthems that work well as... You could do them as choral introits if you wanted to. There are anthems that would work well as psalm settings or as communion meditations. There's all, all sorts of stuff. And for the for the Passion Tide books, there's even two separate settings of the reproaches, for instance, which are sung on Good Friday in a Catholic church. So you end up with a really, really wide range of repertoire that is collected 
crafted for you, handily accessible in one place. And with really good typesetting, I assume. Yeah, it's beautiful typesetting. The pages are laid out perfectly. So people can actually read it, because sometimes you use the, um, what, what is it, CP... Oh yeah, CPDL, and, and you don't always have, a, like text underlay, for example. Text underlay in those free editions can be so bad, you know, and you end up having to spend perfectly good rehearsal time telling people, okay, cross out that particular text underlay because it doesn't even work. You know, whereas with these Oxford editions, the level of editing is about as high as it gets. So that brings us back to the storage discussion, though. Yes. We were, at that time, we had hanging file boxes. One box for the sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses, and everyone just had a hanging file folder. And previously... Each choir member had a yes, folder? Yes, yes. So that was kind of the awkward bit, is that the binders didn't really fit into these. So most of the people kept their binders with them, which mm. meant that sometimes we didn't get them back at the end of the year. Can we tell listeners, like, you have a different setup at your church in that you do not have a choir rehearsal yes, room. Yes, this is true. We There is no space large enough except for the church to hold a choir rehearsal. So we rehearse in the loft and yeah, yeah, there isn't there isn't a devoted rehearsal space. Where do you keep your music then? So all of the octavos are kept downstairs in the ushers' room in a set of file cabinets, and these hanging file boxes were stored in a little a glorified closet off the side of the organ loft. And the file folders worked really well for just putting octavos in, which is kind of what their purpose was, mm -hmm. so that you could just pass out new octavos, you know, before a choir rehearsal, just stick them in the folders, and then tell everyone, oh, you've got new music in your file folders. The trouble mm, yeah. was twofold. First, that file folders are really easy to mess up. <laughs> you, can, you can so easily open the file folder, like, behind yours or in front of yours and take the person in front of you's mm -hmm. music without realizing it, and then they don't have their music in their file folder, and you end up with you know, we, we had so many choir rehearsals where we'd have to mm -hmm. stop and say, okay, who has number 54? All right, let's stop and wait while everyone checks their music. Okay, now, who has number 27? You know, and, and like, you're mm -hmm. taking up rehearsal time just yeah. because the system of organizing yeah. you don't want to do that. is, like, while it's a good organizational system, it, it doesn't facilitate ease of access. It's not as efficient as it could the be. The other problem was that once we got these larger collections, suddenly you couldn't store these books in the file folders. And so people would either have to take yeah. their books home with them, or we would have large stacks of these choral collection books kind of awkwardly sitting in front of the boxes, and people would have to try to maneuver them out mm. to get their own copy. So at the beginning of this summer, I decided that I wanted to get shelving for the choir music, so that each choir member would have his or her own kind of cubbyhole shelf to stick both their mm -hmm. binder that holds their octavos and their choral collection music, and then it just makes it easier for me to put, for instance, the psalm. You know, I can just stick a psalm into every slot. So I mm -hmm. assumed naively that it would be really easy to find something like this, and it turns out that it's not. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I've seen churches where it's built in, like um, like built into, like there's a closet in the room and then some handy person built in the cubbies. Yes, Yes. And it's there. It's part of the room. But you're talking about something that you put into... Yeah, something that you can build. So I emptied out the closet on the opposite side, which was full of tables and things, and went looking on Amazon for something that would work. Kind of a cubbyhole shelf storage. And I discovered that most mm -hmm. yeah. of the products were made to hold paper. Just regular 8.5 by 11 sheets of paper. Which works great for octavos, oh. but it doesn't work 
for your binders. Mm, no. Because um, binders are significantly nope. larger than that. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were a few other options that were made of a kind of reinforced cardboard. And I thought, you know, I mean, these are really mm-hmm. inexpensive, no, but that is no. going to have to be replaced every year. So I yeah. finally found from the Safeco company, and we can provide a link to this because it's just a really good product. I found what is called a project organizer, and it was built out of steel, and I got the 30-slot oh, one. Um, so if your choir is larger than that, you might need to get two. If it's smaller than that, I think they also have an 18-slot project organizer. But the project organizer has really wide slots. They're wide, and they're kind of tall, and you can fit not only your binder that's holding your octavos, but you can also fit your choral collection books. You can fit multiple of them if you, if you need to. And yeah, it was, it was a significant investment. It's almost $600, but I don't think it will need to be replaced anytime in the next couple of decades. It's really hefty steel. I was able to construct it myself in under an hour, and if I can do that, I'm pretty sure anybody can do that, you know? So Crawford just sent me a picture of this organizer. It's three slots across the top by 10 down the side, and it looks like a bookcase with uh, landscape orientation cubbies. It's kind of perfect in terms of size because you can see at a glance everything that's inside the cubby holes. How do people know which is their cubby hole? So I have a sticker across the front kind of entrance of each cubby hole with a number on it. And then oh, okay. I have a list of numbers assigned to the different choir members on the bulletin board that I hung in the room. So that means if you have your anthems numbered, which, you know, some churches do, some churches don't. But if you right, do, yes. that means the person like number one gets the number one anthem. And if you repeat the anthem, they will get their copy again. Yes. Ideally, people should be able to keep their number year after year so that they have the same music. So this actually reminds me this morning, knowing that we were going to talk about choir organization, I texted a friend of mine, Samantha Arton, who's a PhD candidate at Duke University, and she is the choral librarian for Duke Chapel, which means she deals with vast quantities of choral music, far more than I have ever dealt with. And not just number of anthems, but like number of each anthem. So lots and lots of numbers. Yes. And her advice, because I was like, Samantha, do you have any tips or tricks? Is there anything lurking in wait that you wouldn't know about until you get more music? And she's like, well, really what you need to do is be organized up front, which is to say when you're making your database, such as on an Excel spreadsheet, get your categories right from the start, because otherwise you have a lot of work in front of you. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. This actually makes me think of two things that we should talk about, which is how to organize your spreadsheet, and two, the question of do you organize alphabetically by title, or do you organize by acquisition number? So every time you get a new anthem, it gets its new number, and now we're at 470, and now we're at 2006, Right. right? And I want to make a strong suggestion for organizing by acquisition number because... Uh, organizing alphabetically sounds great until you have to rearrange it because your your collection has grown so large that it won't fit on the shelves as organized. So you have to shift everything. Yes, and that is a lot of work. You might think, oh, but there's this this uh, this filing cabinet is only half filled. We have plenty of space. Well, you yeah, know, but give it ten years. years. <laughs> Exactly. And you're going to have to do it or someone else is going to have to do it. And that is a lot of work and a lot of dust. Yeah. Future you will thank present you. A lot of octavos are stored in filing cabinets. Yes. Well, if you do by acquisition number. Yeah, exactly. That works. But you may also have those nice little boxes on shelving and you can also organize that by acquisition number. And... 
Oh, just just to me, if I were starting from scratch, that is 100% the way I would want to go. Yeah. This being said, I have my organ music organized, not in a bookcase, but in a filing cabinet that's huge, as in I don't ever want to have to move it. A huge filing cabinet that fits legal size paper. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, because so many organ scores are oversized. Exactly, exactly. But I have them in hanging file folders, and I have them organized alphabetically, because there is no way in a million years I'm going to have that much organ music. Not in anything compared to the choral octavos that a church can collect over decades. Right. Yes. Yes. I will never have that much music. So, I mean, maybe maybe someone wants to write in and tell me why I should organize by acquisition number. But at least for me, for right now, I just, my, my own organ repertory library is just not yeah. that. Yeah. I feel especially given kind of the browsing nature that we do in our planning of our organ repertoire, it's kind of nice to have everything grouped together by composer because you can, you can say, oh, you know, what's something else that this composer wrote? Or you say, like I want to do make sure that I do maybe four pieces by Krebs this year you know and so you're just going to go through mm. your Krebs collection and pick out those pieces you know that so mm-hmm. I think that makes yeah. a lot of practical yeah. sense to have the organ library so that way how do you have your organ library organized and this would also work for anyone who's doing instrumental music yeah I have a large number of oversized black library boxes and I mm. have a very odd tall shelf in my office that I have the boxes. Like a bookcase? Yeah, it's it's a very large bookcase, but it's an odd bookcase, and I have the boxes laid horizontally. Mm. They stick out of the shelf a little bit. It it is not an ideal setup, but it's the best with a less than ideal shelving situation, and it, it works perfectly well. Okay, we'll put a picture of yours, and we'll put a picture of my filing cabinet in my bedroom closet. It's great. Perfect. <laughs> Things that we are semi-proud of. Oh, oh my word, I am so proud of it. Also, I am so proud of that Excel spreadsheet I made of all my organ repertoire. I did it while I had vertigo, um, taking shingles medicine. It was a horrible time of life, and I was stuck in bed, and I was like, I have no brain power to write a dissertation. What can I do that is worthwhile? I can type titles and composers. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I did for hundreds of pieces, and I am so glad I made myself do that while I was sick. Yeah, a few months ago, I finally got around to organizing all of my organ music. It had been vaguely organized. I was given a very large collection of organ music that was already organized in these alphabetical boxes. But then I had acquired, as as one does so, so many more pieces of music, and they weren't really organized, and I had no idea what I owned and what I didn't, and I was ending up getting duplicate copies of stuff. So I just would take all of the sheet music out of one box and plop it on my desk and go through it, you know, and Mm. write it. I am not terribly good at Excel, so I just did a Word document so that I could search it, you know, if I wanted to. Yeah, so so long as you can search it, like, I feel like the danger of doing a handwritten copy is one you can only access it when you are in the physical site, so your office at church, your office at home, whatever it is. You can only extend a handwritten copy so far. Like, if you get 13 Mm -hmm. more pieces by a composer whose last name begins with Q, you know, suddenly you're up a creek without a paddle (laughs) because there's... There's no way you exactly. can expand that. Exactly. Which which actually goes back to this idea of ac- acquisition numbers, which may be not so relevant for organ repertoire, but it's basically being kind to your future self. Yes. Could you describe a little bit more, actually maybe a lot a bit more about the Excel sheet? Like what things would you want to be on it in terms of anthem repertoire? Okay. Well, I feel like anthem and organ are different. So for yes. my organ spreadsheet, I have title, composer, collection, if it's from a collection, and sometimes it's like communion, orange book. 
because sometimes I, I can picture something in my mind, but I can't quite remember. Uh, what oh, was that? Oh, yeah, yeah. That? Anyway, I also include a tune name. And sometimes I'll include like the text name, but usually I just include the tune name beca- because that's how I'm going to search for a crop right. prelude. I did initially use my spreadsheet for two other things, which was a very failed attempt at the mood of the piece. You know, is it quiet? Is it soft? Is it appropriate for a postlude? And it just, there's so much vagary in that that it became unuseful. And I also tried to use this spreadsheet as my place to keep track of when I had played something. And I have not found that. I I don't go into that spreadsheet every week and update it. It just, for me, maybe it would work well for other people. But on my choir spreadsheets that I've worked with, the categories or the labels that I've used are title, composer, and then other things that really just depend on what's relevant to the particular situation. Because you might want to know the era, a Baroque piece, a Renaissance piece, whatever. You might want to know a scripture passage if it's relevant, especially if it is a setting on a very specific text. Like I feel the danger of using scripture texts is that you want to make it apply to everything. And that is just so much work. It's not useful. Also, season may be relevant. It's an Advent piece. It's definitely a Good Friday piece. It's whatever. And then in talking with Samantha earlier, she said that at Duke Chapel, they also keep track of the number of copies and the publisher. And I feel like that would be especially relevant if you're dealing with different editions of the same music, like how some churches will have like all the Messiah editions. And you're like, okay, what page number are we on in this edition? Because we're singing from three different editions of Messiah, right? But those are the parameters that I've seen that have been useful. But I feel like you find that more tags are useful than less. Yes, that way you can search a broader range of things and pull up more tags for the same anthem, if that makes sense. So you might want to put in a keyword like thirst, for instance. Like like there are a bunch of different anthems that involve... Oh, or like light? Yeah, like light or trust, for instance. I mean, that, that sounds so vague, but there are so many times, especially during ordinary time in churches that follow the lectionary, and mm-hmm. you think, wow, I have no idea what anthem would remotely be applicable for this random Sunday in ordinary time. And it would be so helpful to be able to... Yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling like... If you have any sort of sizable collection, there's so much to go through that you kind of have to leave notes to yourself, especially like for me, like like going into a new church and acquainting myself with their particular set of music yes. and not having the money to just buy all new music, you know, and even just, you know, buying an Advent collection or whatever, that's a big price tag. Yes. And yes. so you have to acquaint yourself with what's there and what you can get for free with decent typesetting, and what you can afford to buy. And that's just a lot of information to keep in your head. Yes. Yeah, and it's easy to forget that you have something in your choral library as well if you don't yes. have accessible mm-hmm. tags. Well, that's how I feel about my organ repertoire also. Like, I'm frequently searching yeah. for a tune name. You know, oh, this is a tune that I probably have a choral prelude on. What actually do I have? Yeah, and you can kind of accidentally relegate something to the dark corners of your mind. Like, you can think when you first see a piece, you think, oh, that's going to be a lot of work to learn. I'm not going to do that right now. And then you just kind mm-hmm. of and then you forget aside, that you and you forget it. that you actually have it. And later on, there might come mm-hmm. a point when you really would like to be able to devote the time to learning that, but you've kind of forgotten that it exists. Or suddenly you have a tenor join your choir who can sing first tenor and suddenly a whole world has opened up. Yes. Yes. So I have a question. How do you keep track of when you have played pieces? Because I'm trying to get in the habit, which I used to have, and I, th- I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, of writing in my physical copy of an organ piece when I play something, and I use an abbreviation for the church and the date, but how do you keep track of your preludes and postludes and of your anthems? Like, how do you know year to year 
what you've done. I'm actually much better about preludes and postludes than I am with anthems. Mm. Twice a year, I come up with a list of my organ repertoire for that. I, I do it by semester, essentially. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I just make a Word doc that has the lists of preludes and postludes for each Sunday in that semester. Mm, okay. So I usually just print out a copy and keep it hung in my office so that I know, you know, where I'm at in learning stuff. But oh, that's helpful. nice to have a physical copy. It's helpful in planning the next year's version of that, because I'll use those kind of as templates. I'll say, okay, I did this last year. Mm. What do I want to move around? What do I want to change out? What do I want to not mm. do again? What do yeah. I definitely yeah. want to do again? And I can see exactly when I've done certain repertoire for the past number of years. Choral repertoire is more difficult to do because there are so many factors that influence whether or not we do, in fact, sing a particular anthem oh, yeah. on a given Sunday. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I can list out the repertoire that I would like us to sing, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what we actually will sing on a given Sunday. So how do you know what you've done? Do you just keep all the bulletins? Like, how do you know retrospectively what you've done? Retrospectively, if I'm perfectly honest, I have a very poor idea of exactly what we've done because... Oh. Okay. You know, working with a volunteer choir, sometimes there are Sunday mornings where you realize, wow, we do not actually have the people to sing this particular piece, and that's fine. That's great. We're going to pull out something. Yeah, we have talked about this. Um, we talked last week about, like, you live in Milwaukee, and sometimes not everyone can show up due to snow. Yeah, and like, it's... You know, it's February and we have seven inches overnight. Yeah, and the, and the service isn't canceled because you're in Milwaukee and, you know, if you are in plowed streets, but your street might not be plowed at that point. Right, so. right. Um, like, these are all very understandable reasons for why the choir mm -hmm. attendance might be mm -hmm. fluctuating. Yeah, I, I just don't want anyone in Florida to be like, wow, who are these people who just like so Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of good reasons. Yeah. But it means that I I don't, in fact, necessarily have a really solid record of exactly mm. what we did sing on a given Sunday. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking of times that I've come in, I've come into a new congregation, and I just asked the secretary for basically a couple years worth of bulletins. You know, email them over, or maybe not for all the services, but for. Easter, for Good Friday, for Christmas Eve, things like that, where I just want to see like what rep have they done, because it's nice to know what a choir is probably still familiar with, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. This actually relates to hymnody also. How do you keep a record so that it's useful for people who come afterwards? And I know like at the church where, the Presbyterian church where I work, the secretary writes in a physical copy of a hymnal when a hymn is sung. She just opens it up, pencils in the date, which I think is a great system. But I also keep a word document of not just my preludes and postludes, but of all the hymns that we sing and the anthems that we do. And I, I don't plan the anthems, but I put them in there regardless so I can just see what's going on. And we have a we have paid section leaders, so we can sing this, we can plan to sing repertoire and we don't shift things around. Right. But it's nice for me because I can see these are the hymns that we've done. And I can look back and be like, have we done this hymn recently? I feel like we should this this particular hymn would work well with this scripture reading, but did we sing it last month? Because I, I just I can't remember those things. It doesn't stay in the top of my mind. Yeah. And I remember, oh, we've sung this, but did we sing it in June or did we sing it in September? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. And it's good, especially it was if, useful you're, for if you're me. teaching a new hymn and you'll want to sing it more frequently to be able to mm -hmm. see how frequently mm -hmm. you you have sung it and to be like, okay, we should exactly. bring it back. But I also feel like this is the kind of document that I would I mean, I would have loved it at a previous position if the secretary had said, oh, the previous music director left this document for you. You can see all the hymns that we've done recently. That right. would have just been so nice to, you know, sit down with a cup of coffee and skim through that for 30 minutes. Yeah, like, actually, nice. all that I have are just the saved music lists that I produce every week. 
So mm-hmm. I don't have mm-hmm. that on one document. I suppose that that would be a good project for this coming summer. I suppose just sit down and kind of print off all of those. But music at the lists same time, I feel like your document with your prelude and your postlude, because say that's you know say forty five Sundays over the course of the year, something yes. like that. Yeah. So you yeah. you know maybe fifty. You know, uh, it's it's a large number, but that's also a manageable amount for you to like keep in mind and have printed out in a physical copy. Whereas if you put in all your hymns, your intro, your your psalm, your everything, that's actually a much bigger word document. Yeah, it is a very large like a much document. bigger it's a much bigger physical copy. So it's not as nice to just skim through. Right. And and particularly because there's going to be more repetition in that. Like we repeat hymns very oh, frequently yeah. in mm-hmm. a way that I don't mm-hmm. repeat organ repertoire. Oh, of course. And of so course. in a sense, it's actually not as immediately helpful because, mm-hmm. you know, well, of course, it's going to be a lot of repetition. And I, and it's it's harder to plan. I guess that also depends on how you're planning things, too, since I don't plan the hymns out over the course of a year. That's true. That's true. Because I'm thinking, like, it's easy to say we're going to sing this hymn or that hymn, but it's much more difficult to say, oh, we're going to do this. I, I'm going to do this big organ piece. Like, you have to have planned ahead for that. You can't you yes. can't just magically make that happen. Yeah. I and I, I love this idea of planning for your future self or for your successor because sometimes it's hard to motivate yourself to just, you know, get organized right now. But if you think, you know what, it's gonna be really nice to know the last time I played this piece. Yeah. And even if even if like it's good to think of planning for your successor, it's also good if you plan to stay in the same post to plan mm-hmm. for your mm-hmm. your future self a decade down the road so that you can have a sense of am I am I in a rut you you don't want to get in that in that oh, place exactly. and having having the ability to look back at these lists and see what repertoire mm-hmm. you've done with the choir with the hymnody yes, with organ because repertoire. there may have been a piece that you really like and 10 years down the road you're not going to remember that yeah yeah at least I wouldn't I don't get enough sleep to remember all of that <laughs> oh so I guess at this point, I'd like to turn it out to listeners. Like, what have you done to organize instrumental music, choral music? How is your choir room set up? We have a segment coming up in a few weeks where we're talking about other nice things in your choir room, like coffee, and yes. how to make those sorts of things happen. Or maybe your not choir room if you're at Crawford Church where you just have your organ loft. And so so tell us, how do you organize things? What have you found useful? How do you make a space hospitable? Yes, yes, and enjoyable for your choir and... You know, frankly, is there room for cookies? There needs to be room for cookies somewhere. A nice flat surface. So, how do you organize your music? Let us know at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. We're going to take a podcasting break for the next few weeks while we do all the Advent and Christmas services, and we'll be back with new episodes after Epiphany starting on January 10th. Until then, happy holidays!